Section six of Wellington by George Hooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter four Home Soldier and Civilian At the moment when Wellesley landed on september tenth, eighteen o five, although Nelson had not yet won his immortal victory, Consul Bonaparte, now Emperor Napoleon, had relinquished his plan of invasion and was preparing to march across the Rhine on the path which led to Ulm and Austerlitz. The splendor of his deeds dazzled the eyes, but did not daunt the hearts of his insular adversaries, who had resumed that stupendous conflict by land and sea, which they conducted with Roman tenacity to a Roman conclusion. The great qualities of the Sepoy general were known only to a few, perhaps to none in their fullness, except his elder brother and those comrades who had seen and shared his toils. The plains of the Deccan were more remote than they are now, and it was far more difficult even than it is in our day to realize and appreciate the merit of services in India. The minister, Mr. Pitt, who saw him more than once, was at a loss which most to admire his modesty or his talents, saying he had never met with any military officer with whom it was so satisfactory to converse, so that his character soon impressed itself upon the men with whom he was brought into contact, and on the whole, although a little later he was for a time thrust into a civil post, there is no ground for saying that as a soldier he really suffered any neglect. Indeed, within six weeks of landing he was ordered on active service, taking part as brigadier in an abortive expedition to Hanover. For some time also he commanded a brigade at Hastings, part of the force watching the French on the opposite coast. He did his duty in this subordinate position as thoroughly as he had done it when at the head of a great army, for it was his principle to serve the king and his government whenever and wherever they might employ him. In the spring of 1806, accepting with the approval of his friends an offer from Lord Grenville, Mr. Pitt's successor as Prime Minister, he entered the House of Commons as member for Rye, and in April he married Lady Catherine Packingham, to whom he had pledged himself before he sailed for India. In Parliament he came at once to the front and made a deep impression by the masterly, lucid, and convincing speeches which he delivered in defense of his brother's policy and administration. Nor did he confine his efforts to the House. He wrote a memorandum on the Marquis Wellesley's government, which has been justly described as still the most practical and correct essay written on the great subject, and he may be said to have enlightened and converted some of the severest critics of his brother's career. Well might he say, by your firmness and decision you have not only saved, but enlarged and secured the invaluable empire entrusted to your government at a time when everything else was a wreck and the existence even of Great Britain was problematical. What a fine censure on the folly, party spirit, and ignorance which for years animated the assailants of Lord Wellesley. You will have seen, he writes to Malcolm, July 1806, that I am in Parliament in a difficult and most unpleasant game I have had to play in the present extraordinary state of parties, nor to parties was he ever subservient. 
he was soon to take a more active and certainly not less difficult and unpleasant part. The death of Pitt, almost on the morrow of Austerlitz, brought in all the talents, and Fox at the Foreign Office filled Napoleon with unfounded hopes of acquiescence in his terms. But Lord Grenville and his colleagues were as tenacious as Pitt, and the peace which Napoleon says he hoped for could not be obtained. In 1807 the famous ministry struck on the hard rock of King George's inveterate prejudices against the Roman Catholics. His subjects of that faith served in the army and navy, it was true, but as it were, on sufferance. On this delicate question Sir Arthur, who held and openly expressed the opinion that no subject should be precluded from serving the state on account of his religious belief, nevertheless thought that from a practical point of view no measure was required, since dissenters of all shades did serve, and had served for years, ashore and afloat. The cabinet wished to make the grant of commissions to any subject lawful, and brought in a bill for that purpose. But the king was steadfast, considered himself ungenerously treated, and by his opposition obliged the ministry to resign. One result of the political change was that Sir Arthur was offered and accepted the post of Chief Secretary to the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, the Duke of Richmond. He held that ungrateful office for two years, but twice during the period he was engaged in active service in Denmark and Portugal. It is not necessary, nor would it be practicable, to dwell on his Irish secretaryship, which may be regarded as an episode, and dealt with briefly once for all. His first labor was to secure the return of members favorable to the government. He had to buy and did buy openly by gifts of places, pensions, and titles, those persons, high and low, who disposed of seats, just as he detached an Amrit Rao from the Maratha Confederacy, or induced an Umir Khan to enter the Nizam's service. It was the custom of a corrupt time, and he did not attempt to pretend that it was otherwise than disgraceful to the men who put themselves up to the highest bidder. They were for sale, he bought them, they were a minority, yet were needed. For one member, he said, in after life, who was returned to the Parliament of 1807 through what you call corruption, ten took their seats the honest advocates of the opinions which they held, and he thought that the tenth might be secured, rather than allow them to go over to the opposition. When asked whether he justified the buying and selling of seats, he answered that the inquiry opened up the whole question of constitutional government. Such was his point of view. He heartily despised a venal politician, but he thought it right to use influence in the counties and open boroughs, where in that day, 1807 through 9, almost every man of mark in the state had his price. His object was to uphold authority and preserve the integrity of the kingdom, and setting aside his private feelings, he employed the means then usual to attain his chief end. He would not ignore or gloss the great facts. What they were, and the passage is startling when read in 1888, is succinctly stated in a letter to Lord Hawkesbury. I am positively convinced, he wrote from Dublin in May of 1807, that no political measure which you could adopt would alter the temper of the people of this country. They are disaffected to the British government. They don't feel the benefits of their situation. 
attempts to render it better either do not reach their minds or they are represented to them as additional injuries and in fact we have no strength here but our army there is no great change now despite the removal of grievances but the maintenance of the union does not now so much depend upon the army as it does on the resolution of the people of great britain at any rate time has justified the prescience of arthur wellesley who eighty years ago clearly saw the facts and governed himself accordingly for the rest his policy as ever was moderation and conciliation and among his practical acts was one to establish the dublin police and the suggestion of a measure subsequently adopted which rendered the irish and british militia available for service anywhere in the united kingdom he took civil duty solely on the condition that he should not be precluded from active service and he insisted on its fulfilment saying no political office could compensate to me the loss of the situation which i held in the army and nothing shall induce me to give it up therefore he sought and he obtained the military employment which best suited his genius napoleon and alexander of russia gave him the opportunity of playing a subordinate yet not obscure part in the great drama the italian genius who led the french and the nations whom he subjected to them had almost eclipsed the brightness of austerlitz by the crushing victory over prussia at jena and in the spring and summer of eighteen o seven he captured danzig and overcame the stubborn russian army in the sanguinary battles of eylau and friedland driven over the niemen the russians were induced to negotiate the terms of the peace then attained were embodied in the treaty of tilsit and the two emperors appeared before the world if not as friends for napoleon said alluding to his royal associates there are no friends among us yet as close allies he had no open enemy on the continent and he and his allies settled matters as they pleased in their treaty of peace but to that instrument there were secret articles and one of them was that the resources of denmark especially her fleet should be placed in the hands of napoleon he hoped also to obtain that of sweden and called the king arch madman when he refused if these ends were gained then the french emperor would dispose of a large french dutch spanish and danish naval force which combined with that of russia would give him sixty sail of the line in the north sea and the baltic alone by some means the secret was revealed to the british government and no wonder for the russians raged under their defeat and hated the treaty one day july fifteenth count vorenzoff gave to lord castlereagh a letter which had come to hand from sir robert wilson who was with the russian court and on the nineteenth only four days afterwards the british government resolved to anticipate napoleon and demand the temporary custody of the danish ships of war a combined naval and military expedition was organized and sent to sea with great promptitude for by the end of the month it was on its way to copenhagen how well the british government was informed and how correctly they judged may be shown from the napoleon correspondence one provision made at tilsit was that the emperor of russia should offer to mediate between england and france on august second napoleon who then knew nothing of the british expedition thus wrote from st cloud to bernadotte who had an army of dutch and spanish troops on the lower elbe 
if england does not accept the mediation of russia denmark must either declare war or i shall declare war on denmark in the latter case you will be destined to take possession of tout le continent danois when he learned some days later that the expedition had arrived he directed bernadotte to offer the crown prince all the help he might need to resist the unjust aggression of england the two dispatches form an instructive contrast it is evident that nothing except the audacious policy of the british government prevented napoleon from acquiring what he considered an important naval reinforcement and the law of self-preservation which applied with imperative force at that moment justified them in thwarting a formidable adversary who was master of the continent the command of the army which including the troops already in the isle of rugen consisted of twenty seven thousand men was entrusted to lord cathcart who had for assistance sir henry burrard and sir david baird while the reserve four battalions and a few german horse was under sir arthur wellesley lord cathcart's demands were refused the powerful fleet invested the islands the troops were landed in the middle of the month north and south of the town and while wellesley drove the danish forces in the field out of zealand batteries were erected and the city compelled to endure an awful and destructive bombardment thus coerced major-general paymon the governor agreed on september sixth to surrender the fortress the arsenal and the fleet the articles were drawn up the same night by sir arthur wellesley and ratified the next morning his share in the whole transaction was confined to operations in the field and the negotiation of the surrender entrusted to him by lord cathcart he won golden opinions from the country folk gentle and simple because he protected them and punished offenders keeping his fine brigade in admirable order there are some passages in his letters which imply that he did not approve of the bombardment which was so horribly effective i acknowledge he wrote to lord hawkesbury august twenty eighth that i should prefer an establishment upon amag as a more certain mode of forcing a capitulation than a bombardment in fact the danes are fighting only for their credit it would be disgraceful not to bear a bombardment but no city with a population of seventy or eighty thousand inhabitants can be expected to hold out when cut off from all supplies of provisions besides i think it behooves us to do as little mischief to the town as possible and to adopt any mode of reducing it rather than a bombardment at the same time he admitted that no man can judge of the propriety of any particular plan of operations so well as the person who conducts them and knows everything for his part he accepted the parole of the officers he captured in action and did all he could to conciliate the inhabitants among whom he moved and it is at least probable that had he led the expedition its essential object would have been attained by milder yet not less effective methods even conducted as it was it affords a fine example of what a maritime power can do in a brief space of time the resolve to anticipate napoleon was taken on july nineteenth and by october twentieth the fleet and army had returned to england bringing back fifteen line-of-battle ships several frigates and twenty thousand tons of very valuable naval stores but as mr james remarks the benefit to england was not what she had acquired but what denmark that is napoleon lost 
Wellesley had long preceded his comrades. As there was nothing more to be done, a week after the capitulation he asked for leave to depart, and on the first day of October was dating his letters from number 11 Harley Street, London, preparing to face in Ireland the long nights fast approaching, a suggestive phrase too common in the records of that unhappy country. End of section 6